spoken lately. I haven't thought about flying for a long time. I haven't dreamed of that moment when I was alone above the clouds for a long time. I haven't dreamed of waking up in a room surrounded in blue and green grass more years than I could dream of memory. I haven't walked back into the past or scratched on the doors of my origins, where it all came from, since I held up that cape for the last time. Return to Kent Town 10th year anniversary edition is a revised version of Ambien's first poetry book. The book can be purchased from Amazon and it contains numerous additional material. Spoken Hi, it's Ambien from Spoken Label. Thank you today for streaming or downloading another episode of Spoken Label. Spoken Label was originally set up on beginning of the 2016 and as of speaking has currently nearly 300 sessions. The full archive is available on Spoken Label full stop bandcamp.com although it is available for free for stream and download if you wish i am always grateful for any sort of kind of donation to enable to me to keep the running costs this podcast going and enjoy take care bye-bye spoken label hi guys andy and spoken label back in the house on a monday evening yes spoken label is back as always now we're not actually that far today we're actually a couple of towns away from where i live actually and we'll speak to a lovely lady as well Ooh, I've just shocked her a moment ago by saying, I think I first met her when she was in a folk band. And that was about 15 <laughs> years ago. So, so it's kind of caught her out of that. But I've got with me today the wonderful Sophie Parks. Sophie, yeah. obviously, introduce yourself first of all and tell everybody where your creativity came from. We'll start from there. Thanks. Um, yeah, so I'm Sophie Parks. Um, I live in Mosley in Greater Manchester and I've been writing for as long as I can remember. I'm sure most writers and artists that you have on uh, say something similar. I've been writing for as long as I think I can read, that, that, that I've been reading. Um, childhood friend and I used to make up stories and make little books when we were very small and I've written ever since. And I just did that classic thing really of just writing, 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 never really finishing anything, never really taking it seriously until only a handful of years ago where I was just like, I really want to give this a go now. I really want to finish something, try and get it out there and and see where we go. So um, yeah, and since then, since sort of narrowing my focus really, I've just been hunkering down, I guess, and and writing a novel and uh, writing another novel. And I've got a few other practice kids novels on the hard drive as it goes, you know, um, yeah. So that's me, really. Really. Now, obviously, I want because what, what I like about you, Sophie, is we've only actually—I know we've met, we've met about three times, haven't we, over the years, yeah. over various bits and pieces. But I've always, I've always liked you as a person, and I also liked your work as well. So that's why I wanted to get you on today. When your novels about, as obviously it's out in December, which is this is recorded just before. But yeah. to give people an understanding about yourself as a person. I want to touch on about your background first of all. So. And I know, obviously, you were born in Bam- Bambury, weren't you, in Oxfordshire as well? That's right, yeah. Yeah, I've got, I used to have a friend that used to live there as well, actually. Oh, so, right. Yeah, yeah, so she moved, she got married to a motor mechanic in, and now living in New Zealand. Oh, <laughs> so, wow. <laughs> anyway, that's the story of another day, that, so. But, um, okay, when did you first come to Manchester, then? Was that when you went to the University of Manchester? That's right, yeah. Um, I was determined to come up north for university, and Manchester was always my 
first choice. Um, yeah, I just, more than anything, I was thinking about joining a band then and I just wanted to be in a lively city with us, you know, a lively music scene. So um, that, that was my aim, more than the English degree, I think, that I was studying. So <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I came up in 2003 and then I've I've never returned. I'm, I'm hoping I've been accepted by Northerners now as an honorary Northerner. <laughs> I mean, when you get to that stage, Sophie, I think you probably have by now. So, <laughs> now, but like I said, for talking about you, obviously, I know when I met you, and I'm sure you were in a folk band at that time originally, I think it was 07 or 08 territory, maybe even before, right? But yeah. I know a couple of years later, and I thought um, you wrote the official biography of Eliza Carthy, who I absolutely love. So, yeah. tell us about very briefly about that then, because obviously, I've not read the book. I want to know first of all, I think it's a good indication about your novel. So yes. tell us about that then. How do you, how yes. you got into Eliza Carthy and where did the book come from? Well, it was an absolute dream come true. I've been a fan of Eliza since I was a kid, um, mainly because I play the violin. So yeah, the band that you saw me in, um, she was just my idol, really. Um, just a really cool person, but also her musicality is just second to none. Um, there's no one that comes close with Eliza. Um, and it would have been, oh, uh, in my early 20s, I really wanted to write a book about fiddle players because by then I'd interviewed loads of fiddle players. I used to write for a magazine called Fiddle On. Um, which oh, I love, that, I love that magazine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and they just, it was all about the fiddle. Um, and I'd interviewed probably about 35 violinists by then and I'd contacted a couple of publishers and they're all really, all really nice and, and, and kindly and supportive, but nobody really wanted it, it being quite a niche thing. But one publisher got back to me and he said, I don't think there's a market for this, but what else could we do? And um, he was a lovely guy called Phil Godsell, who runs um, Soundcheck Books and um, a specialist music publisher. And he'd earmarked folk music as a... Um, as a market for them, I guess, identifying that there's a real sort of groundswell of people wanting to read and um, learn about the folk scene, um, but not much out there, not many books. Um, so we just got talking and straight away, I just said, well, Eliza's my hero. And he was like, let's do it. Let's go and see her. Let's go and put it to her. And I, for a split second thought, what the hell have I said? You know, can I, <laughs> um, but you know, when somebody says something like that to you, you've just got to go for it, haven't you? So the next thing, she was living in Edinburgh at the time and we just got the train up there with this guy that I'd never met before. <laughs> um, went up to Edinburgh, met her in her house and put it to her. And she was a bit worried at the time as well, because I think she thought it might be a bit of a warts and all kind of biography. Um, and she'd had some difficulties along the way, as, as musicians often do, you know, it's a really tricky industry um people get chewed up and spat out and um and she was worried I think that I might dwell on some of those things that perhaps she didn't want to dwell on anymore so I assured her that although I was a keen writer I was a fan first and foremost and I wasn't bothered about the dirt I just wanted to put her career and her life into some kind of perspective really and so she gave us our blessing and I went away and did it and I met with her lots. Um, she moved to back to Robin Hood's Bay, where her family were from. So I went over there quite often. Got to hang out with her mum and dad um, and the rest of her, yeah, you know, esteemed family and many, many other people as well. You know, I had people um, not literally, but queuing around the block to speak to me because they all wanted to let me know what a great influence Eliza was on their own work and um, what a great collaborator. So I spoke to people like as, 
you know, um, as varied as Paul Weller and Stuart Lee and Richard Thompson and Billy Bragg, um, you know, people that were so keen to talk about what an innovative, exciting artist Eliza was. So it was just a dream, really. And then, she, oh, she let me loose on her old photo albums. So I got to rummage through boxes of photos and oh, decide wow. which were going to go in the book, which was just incredible. Oh, wow. It, I would have absolutely been like, go on, you, you meet your heroes like that. And I've got various musical heroes, and I'm not, I'm not going to go into it. But did you find that to, until you, that first meeting was must have terrified you at the time, I suspect? Yeah, well, I'd, I was lucky in that I'd interviewed her, actually, for Fiddle On a few years before, and she'd remembered me, because I think I was quite unusual at the time. I started interviewing folk musicians when I was 15. Oh, wow. <laughs> obviously, um, folk musicians and folk fans tend to be on the older side. Um, so I think I was quite unusual. People tended to remember me um, then. So we'd have a good chat then. Um, and so I, I had met her before, but then, yeah, as you say, actually getting to hang out in, in your idol's living room and meet her daughters and stuff. It was, <laughs> it was oh. nerve-wracking. And another oh. time when I knocked on the door and Martin Carthy, her dad, opened the door and said, oh, you must be Sophie. And I was just like quaking there on the doorstep thinking, yes, this is Martin Carthy who... Oh, my God, yeah. Yeah, oh, I know people that not actually met Martin. If you, I know I've got friends that are real full folkies and they all said what a great guy he is. And I've only seen him live, so I can't comment. But anyway... Looks fantastic. I envy you. <laughs> That's the way I put it okay. to you. Now, I want to touch on very briefly as well, obviously, um, because I know you've done, you've done another autobiography as well, and I, I hadn't heard of this gentleman. So also the endurance athlete, Dave Healy as well. So tell us very briefly about that book, that book as well, then. Yeah, so in the West Midlands, uh, my family originally Brummies, that, that, um, and my extended family is still in Birmingham. So I, I spend quite a bit of time in the West Midlands and Dave Healy is very well known there. He, he lives in West Brom. He's a West Brom lad. Um, and he lost his sight when he was 10. He's in his late 60s now. Um, and he spent, well, he's had an incredible life, really, but he spent a good proportion of his life coming up with the most crazy fundraising um, escapades you can imagine. He's done... Um, all sorts of things um and i suppose the thing that made his name was he did seven marathons on seven seven consecutive days um on seven continents uh if you can get your head around that he, he oh did my God. yeah so um, <laughs> yeah wow. so as you can imagine he's got a few tales to tell um and he is a keen runner cyclist uh sportsman in general and so is my dad my dad met him a few times and basically, my dad volunteered me, <laughs> said, oh, my daughter will write your book for you. Um, and the next thing I knew, I was doing it, which was <laughs> an experience. Um, if you meet Dave, he's very, he's got a really particular way of speaking. Um, accent, of course, you know, the West Brom accent is unlike anything else. It, it's, it's wonderful. But also, he's just... Oh, the, the, the words he uses, the phrases he he's a born storyteller. And I just thought, oh, this is quite daunting. But also this is really good experience for me, who's, you know, who has a real interest in life writing. Um, can I capture this guy's story in his own words or, or at least words that could sound like his own words? Because he's running so much and training, he, he just didn't have time to sit and write. So um, he would give me 
reams and reams of stuff he'd kind of thought about and voice memos and, and then we did some interviews and then I sort of ran with it um so to speak and oh, cool. yeah cool. yeah it was such such a great experience and he's since used that book to um he, he does sort of um testimonial type speaking you know um going to events functions and and standing up and giving great rousing speeches and so he uses that book um as a way of of um plying his trade I suppose which is great and he also um for the obviously the audio version was really important to him being blind and he wanted the blind community of which he is you know very well regarded he wanted um, others to be able to read it too so he asked Adrian Childs to do the audio um again was really good fun for me knowing that the words I've written down Adrian Childs was was reading (laughs) Um, oh god yeah no I think everything you always do is creativity and your defecation, so I'm, I'm going to lose this as a link now to move on to somewhere else. But yeah, no, I do agree with like everything you do is creativity. I mean, you want to get something out of it. And those yeah. are completely different projects you really, aren't they? So, yeah. And that's why, like, I obviously, I think the second time I met you was when you just after you launched uh, Mosley Righteous a couple of years ago. Mm. And obviously, like, people know, obviously, if you live up this way, you also you did the Tameside workshop last year as well. So, yeah. Tell us a bit about both those projects before we move on to your novel, of course. Yeah. People, should, people should know about these, in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. Well, I moved to Mosley, oh, when would it have been? Oh, uh, seven years ago now. And uh, I didn't know a soul here. And so it was partly a way of getting to know people. But also I, around that time, I just really needed a writing group. I, I wanted to meet other writers. I wanted to share work. Um, so I just decided to start my own and see what would happen. And it has been a really great success in that um, it's just amazing group of people that come together once a month. Um, we're actually meeting tomorrow night and I really look forward to it. Um, and there's actually about 20 of us that meet regularly, which is enormous for a writing group. You know, writing oh, nice. group- yeah, yeah, that is a big that is a big one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they tend to be sort of six or seven people usually. But um yeah, we've had to move venue actually because because <laughs> uh, we've become quite a big group. But what's lovely is it's writers of all different persuasions, you know, people that are just starting out, people that are published, um, people that just write for themselves and for the fun of it. Then we've got people that write all sorts of work, you know, poets and prose writers and um, playwrights and memoir writers and it's just lovely so each month we come together and we critique um, two people's work that's been sent around in advance and have a really good discussion about their work and then we do a writing exercise together and then quite often we do writing projects as a group as well as a collective so we've recently worked on um, one with the the town so Mosley is celebrating this year its 50th anniversary of being twinned with a town in France uh, and we've done some nice writing about Mosley um, and we've recorded a, a film and we're doing workshops and that kind of thing, which is really great to be able to offer it um, out to people in our in our town and on our doorsteps. Um, and that kind of leads me on to the Tameside Workshop, which was um, an Arts Council funded project. And it came out of the fact that the group now, Mosley Writers, has been going a year less than I've lived here, so six years. Um, and we've got to the point where we all know each other so well and we all know our writing so well that we find it quite hard to critique each other because it's got to a standard that we all sort of appreciate and I thought if we're not careful we may you know end up stagnating and we we need to sort of make sure that we're getting really good outside influence and we're still learning from each other 
And I was thinking, how, how can we do this? How can we learn regularly from other writers? Um, and then because we were really enjoying our work, you know, beyond the community offering workshops and working with other organizations, I thought, you know, we, we can do more here. We can, um, we can offer this, whatever this might be, out to people across Tameside. Um, and so this project started to develop where uh, it became a year long series of monthly workshops with writers from right across the country, actually, that we could invite in. So really high profile established writers working in, in their fields and they could come and do a workshop with us on, on the doorstep in Ashton. So easy to get to if you live in Tameside because all roads lead to Ashton in Tameside. That's, that's <laughs> and, true. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and, you know, I wanted it to be free or, or low cost. So it was really inclusive. And the chance to just learn with really great people. And amazingly, the Arts Council funded it. And it was great. It started July last year and ran through to July this year. Um, and we had, you know, fantastic writers. Um, Helen Moore, uh, a poet who's based in Sheffield, some, some of you might know. Um, Okichiku in Zulu, who, um, whose books have been uh, shortlisted for all sorts of prizes. And um, yeah, and of course, once you start to try and remember who else came along, you forget, of course. Um, but we had incredible writers come to us. Um, and we we're just really lucky that we had that opportunity. And I'm hoping we may be able to continue that project in some way um, and hope that it lives on in, in some form because we we met loads of other writers across Tameside and uh, it was a really great thing. Yes, it was because I had nothing but good reviews and it's a great idea because I think, I think a lot of ways to East Manchester, Tameside way, is quite an impoverished area. For you to yeah. go and do what you did, I think you were giving a lot back to the area so you've got, you've got a lot more respect from that straight away, so... Oh, thank no. you. Well, it was only as good as the writers that came along to participate. And we had some fabulous people, you know, and we were oversubscribed most months. And uh, I only wish that we could get more people physically in the room because uh, it was just a brilliant bunch of people coming together. Oh, yeah. And so I, that's what, exactly what I heard about it as well. So, but anyway, now I think we've done this in a very long roundabout way. But obviously, <laughs> we're here today to actually talk about your debut novel, actually. But I wanted people, obviously, to hear about your background first of all, to give you an idea about the novel itself. So now you've sent over to me the PDF of the novel to read, and I absolutely love this. Really, really enjoyed this book. And should I, should I tell should I tell people, Sophie, how quickly I read this? And this, <laughs> yeah. well, Sophie kindly sent this over to me as a PDF about three days ago. And I think you're probably expecting I'd probably be able to flick my way through the book. I actually managed to read the 360-page novel in two and a half days, so which <laughs> kind of says it all, really. So I'm very impressed. Yes, that speedy reading. <laughs> it was. It surprised me as well. That now, obviously, I've got to ask you first. We'll come up with the obvious question first of all. Then, where did the idea of this book come from originally? Then? Yeah. So um, I've always had a keen interest in folklore, and when I moved to Mosley, um, I started to hear about the Bills of Jacks murders, which occurred, um, if anyone that knows the area, there's a really bleak but fascinating road that crosses the moors between Greenfield and Homefirth, which is absolutely terrifying in winter. Um, and there, just sort of on the Greenfield end of the road, um, there was a pub, um, and in 1832, the publican and his um, son, they were murdered and it was particularly gory and grisly. And 
people became absolutely captivated by it because, um, well, I think it was sensationalized in the newish month, Chester Guardian then, and the news traveled down to London. Um, but most importantly, nobody was ever caught for it. And so it became quite well known throughout the country and people used to come up and visit and go and see the pub that was preserved in all its gory glory, um, if you like, you know, blood spattered walls and everything. Um, and it became quite the Victorian thing to do, go for a picnic and then go and see the Bills of Jacks, uh, the Moorcock Inn and some blood and gore. Um, so I heard this and I'm, I'm not particularly interested in crime or a horror per se, that, that kind of thing, to be honest, frightens me <laughs> and I'd rather than not think about it. But I um, was drawn straight away to the story or the sort of nub of a story of the woman who found the bodies, um, in, in all accounts, she tends to be a young girl, actually, um, a, a girl called Amelia. I think she's meant to be sort of 11 or 12 years old that finds the body of her grandfather and her uncle. And then she's never mentioned again uh, in all the accounts. And I just wondered who this person was and how on earth they dealt with that traumatic finding, really. And then to, for the case to gain such notoriety, and at the time, you know, this would have been a, a hamlet in the hills. It would have been completely isolated and uh, inescapable if you had that kind of um, millstone around your neck. Um, so I just became interested in her story and it developed from there. So I've actually, I did, I did research into the, into the actual case, but then worked out what I wanted to change and omit and um, so that's why the author's note at the end of the PDF is, is quite clear because I don't want to mislead people about the historical case. I do want to let everyone know that this is fiction um, and I have done a great deal of creation and invention. Yeah, I was reading about it at lunchtime before and yeah, is what I loved about this book, Sophie, was, and that's why I'm really, really glad we got to talk about it today, was the authenticity and authenticity in the book. So obviously like, I can see that what you would you put a lot of thought and make the fictionalized a real life story but made it real still in it you know like a, like an alternative reality really but oh, kept good. it authentic i think it is really and it was the because the use of the language in the book is absolutely phenomenal on it really did you okay. did how long did it take you to get the research for this book done? you must this must have took months that's yeah. just well, it's funny because it was my first stab at writing you know proper historical i had had a go before but uh, it kind of petered out and this time I thought how because when you approach a project like that there's you can't read enough can you that you could read everything under the sun and still feel like you you had gaps in your knowledge so what I decided to do the best way around it was to learn a lot about um the towns in the area and, and the industry and how people lived that that was core and I did that by reading, obviously, but also going to um, places like Quarry Bank Mill and Style Mill and, and um, you know, places that have been preserved that, that tell you how, um, how people worked and lived at that time. Um, but then I realised that actually what's most important here is, is the story that I'm trying to tell. And it's not a historical paper that's going to be published in a journal it's a novel for enjoyment um so I wanted to make sure that my first draft was about the characters and about their interactions and 
I wrote that really without major uh, research because I wanted it to stand up first and foremost as a story, if that makes sense. Yeah, so then, it does. Yeah, good. And then I went back through and worked out what don't I know? What do I need to know? Um, because you can over-research as well and you can find out all these wonderful facts and start to think, how can I shoehorn this into my novel when actually it's not necessary at all? And I've got an example of that. I found that my, my characters in this novel are Methodist um, because I found um, Methodism was um, sort of emerging at that time. And, and particularly uh, it was quite interesting around here because of um, the landscape being sort of cut off and preachers having to find their way here and people setting up their own uh, chapels and so on. I found that really fascinating. Um, but one fact I learned was um, in the industry, in the woolen industry, people used to live, leave their urine out um, and get paid for it because it was used in the manufacturing processes. And if you were a Methodist or if you were a ginger person, you were seen as having better urine. So you used to get more money for your urine. Um, oh, whoa. I don't, know why, I don't know why ginger people, but the idea with um, <laughs> is um, Methodists didn't drink, so their urine was seen as a better, better quality. And I just thought, what an amazing fact. But I couldn't get it into the novel. And then I realised that that's kind of, that epitomised uh, writing historical fiction for me, really, that you have to work out what your story is first and if you find a lovely detail like that and it does have a place and great but more often than not you're not going to get your urine into <laughs> into your novel so you're just going to have to leave those facts out so um yeah so after my first draft I, I went back through to find out where my gaps were and actually what surprised me is because I've read quite a bit of Bronte and Gaskell and those kind of novels over the years set in that period even Dickens and, and stuff I guess um I had a kind of language that was already emerging. And I'm not to say that I know it all at all. I, you know, I'm really not a historian. I, I don't know that period particularly well um, then, certainly. Um, but I surprised myself that actually the, the detail I needed was perhaps less than I realised. Um, so I could go away and work out what I needed to research in a much better fashion, I think, than just trying to read everything I could lay my hands on. It kind of reminded me, in a not well, in a kind of way, this book, your book. Have you read Mark Atwood's um, alias Grace? Yes, I have. Um, yes, and it was funny actually. I started the novel, in fact, I may have even had a first draft before I read that book. Um, it was sort of pressed into my hands saying, You must read this, and I was so glad I did because there are so many comparisons, um, and it was so helpful to me. Um, yeah, it's, it's probably my favourite book of the Margaret Atwood's, actually, to be honest with you. Although, although I do like Handmaiden's Tale, I do love the book, the TV yeah. series. I will state that now. But Alias Grace is a tremendous book because it's, I think you're right, Vee. I can see you took it in a very different way to where Margaret Atwood did. And like I said, they, there is a comparison with it. That's why you did it. But anyway, um, I want to, obviously, then, I'm just moving on to the book itself now. I'm going to. Jump, I'm going to ask, do, do a spoiler or two here. So anyone's reading the book, be aware there is a spoiler bit coming. I'm not going to go into major spoilers, okay? Mm -hmm. Because obviously you did put a twist in the book about page 200. But, mm -hmm. but what made you want to move, get the characters to go to Canada, the major two characters? Yeah, um, because I thought that that was quite common... Well, I suppose it wasn't common for the everyday person, but the the 
the protagonist, one of the protagonists, you know, he's not an everyday kind of guy. He's quite unusual. And I wanted his ambition to sort of outgrow where he lived. Um, and the fact that his control and his coercion of Millie, our protagonist, you know, leaves her without any agency. And she she's literally forced to go somewhere that she doesn't, she's never even thought about, let alone wanted to go. She's quite happy where she is. Um, despite the, the awful tragedy that's happen happened to her family. Um, you know, emigration, she'd never dream anything about it. And yeah, and I just wanted, I, I'd read quite a bit about the coffin ships going over at that time. And I was just fascinated by it. And I wondered how somebody, you know, would it give you the opportunity to leave behind something awful like, like a tragedy like this? Or would, would it actually exacerbate your situation and make things 10 times worse? Um, so I suppose that's where that came in, really. And it was a little bit of a challenge to me, writing a, a big voyage to a place that I, I don't know particularly well. I've, I've been once to Quebec, and that was for about a week on holiday. <laughs> Quite different. I never took a to Quebec City. So there was a lot of reading and google earth looking at st lawrence <laughs> so. <laughs> i was i was i was wondering if you'd been to canada that's why i could have almost to do what you did there that's a brave move for an author to do that but, but so i'd say that nowadays it is a lot easier to do research and stuff like that it is. yeah i've got i've got family from toronto which i have met but i've never been to toronto myself but i've seen enough pictures of it from those days certainly yeah, I think you got the, the feel was really good, didn't it? Like the book all along, straight away with that. And um, obviously, like people wondering, I was like, to go from Liverpool to Canada, would it, I think you, as you correctly said, it's about a 10 week a ten week journey on the boats and sickness is rampant in those boats, certainly any structure fault at the time. And I like the fact that you touched on that with a number of the main characters and the journeys in that book. So, yeah, it's excellent. Oh, good. Yeah, the Maritime Museum in Liverpool is really helpful and they actually have the stage of a ship around that time built into the, as a sort of walk-in installation. And that was brilliant. You know, you could really see how harrowing that situation would be. Yeah, the body count, that, you both know that. I really, I've done research as a school and beyond that. The body count, when you went over there, like not everybody made it by any stretch yeah. of all. With all kinds of horrific diseases coming up, certainly. So, um, right, okay. I want to obviously touch on obviously. I know you were you were nominated for a good award in this book as well before it come out with the Northbound Book Award. So, tell us about that then. How how you got involved with that? Yeah, um, the Northern Writers Awards um, happen every year. It's run by New Writing North, the writing development development agency for the North, um, and. They're just a fa fantastic set of awards. I really um, recommend any writers um, in the North to look them up and, and to submit something because I was lucky enough to win um, a Northern Writers Award back in 2017. And you get um, mentoring and amazing support long after you've won that award. And it's just absolutely invaluable. Um, and the Northbound Book Award is a more recent new award, a new category where you send a full manuscript in and one is picked and then published by Saraband, the publisher. And so I just thought, oh, as a punt, I'll, I'll send this in. And I was delighted that it was shortlisted. And then um, Adam Farrer, who's recently published Cold Fish Soup, 
um, if you've read that, that actually went on to win. And uh, having read it very recently, I'm not at all surprised. It's an absolutely incredible book. Uh, really funny, really dark, really poignant, touching the lot. It's just beautiful, exquisite book. Um, so, yeah, having read that now, I just thought, whew, I, I can't even believe I was shortlisted. So that was that was a nice thing to happen. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, okay. Now, obviously, I want to touch on, obviously, because I know you've, You've hinted before as well, obviously. Obviously, I want to give you a chance to do a bit of reading for us today as well, so I'm going to wrap up with a couple of quick questions. In fact, mm -hmm. I've got one that I've not asked and not told you about as well. So but we'll, have the, we'll have the fun question first, because mm -hmm. I saw this book, a very cinematic, this film book being very cinematic. So if you had the chance of this to become a film, who would you actually like as your two main characters, Millie and Johnny? Oh, what a question. Yeah, I've had a couple of people read it and say that they thought it was really cinematic too. Um, and, oh, well, Johnny Barkwell could be Killian Murphy, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because uh, he does very attractive, but very evil very well. <laughs> <laughs> We're giving spoilers away, so we'll move straight yeah. on there. <laughs> oh, and Millie, that's tricky. Um, oh, this is really difficult because you don't want a sort of conventional Hollywood. She she's quite passive actually, and early readers of early drafts found that quite tricky. That she's quite a passive character until she has to act. You know, things happen to her until she can't take it anymore. She's not a conventional sort of plucky heroine kind of thing. So she's quite quiet and observational and quite happy with the status quo. So, oh, um, of course, I'm now forgetting any actor's name. <laughs> but, you know, oh. I, I think I'm going to have to cop out and come back to you on that one. Yeah, well, <laughs> we, can, we can always work that another day, right? So when we get to, when we get to the film version of it, we can you can tell me then whether that's good casting or not. <laughs> so, but anyway, Sophie, of course, um, you've already hinted you've got other books and stuff on the go, haven't you? So, um. Do you have any ideas what's going to come next then? Well, I'm writing a novel for my PhD. I'm really lucky to have um, a scholarship at the Sheffield, uh, at Sheffield Hallam University where I'm writing um, a novel as part of my PhD. And it's, it's not historical, it's a contemporary novel, very different mm -hmm. to Out of Human Sight. But it is all focused on my love and fascination of folklore. Um, particular calendar customs so those are the things that happen in our communities like cheese rolling and um, May Day festivities and uh, rush bearing and that kind of thing um, so it focuses on a custom that is my own invention basically um, and I'm on my second draft of that but we'll see that I have no publisher lined up or anything yet so we'll see where that goes who knows? Well, good, luck, good luck, but you don't. You never know from project to project, as I always say. So, well, fingers crossed yourself. So, now, obviously, if people are tracking down. I know already. Of course, you're on Twitter, so people want to find you. They can go and find you on Twitter already, can't they? At yes. Soph Park, which I'll put the right up. Now, where can people get hold of the book? That's a good question. All your normal bookshelf, wherever you get your books from, you'll be able to get this book um, from. So, yes whatever you'll be able to order it wherever you like or online um Northodox is the publisher and um they will be your first port of call and they can so if, if you like your e-readers you can get it through your usual places 
Brilliant. Well, good luck with the book, Sophie, definitely, because I've his tremendous book, like I said, and uh, like I said, repeat myself that, to get me to read a book in three days, and it's a 360-page <laughs> book, that's still going, right? So, uh, but anyway, no, it's tremendous. Good luck with it, definitely. So now Thank we're going to take a quick so. break now, and we're going to get you to come back and do a bit of reading for us. So. Lovely. See you on. Spoken Hi, guys. Andy N. The wonderful Sophie Parks. Time for me now to take a break because Sophie's going to read for us an extract from your novel, Sophie. Go for it. I look forward to hearing this. <laughs> Thank you. Out of human sight. Millie could see the open door to the inn as she turned onto the track. There was no sign of the dray. The barrels would have been unloaded earlier. She searched the green bowl of the valley for her uncle, cocking his gun at a rabbit or checking his traps. She pushed the hair out of her eyes, but it flayed her cheeks again, pulling at the pins jammed into the back of her head. The wind was so fierce that she would have to pin it all back up when she got home. Another task for the list. Why her mother had chosen this afternoon to run out of use, she didn't know. Why should it be her duly dispatched when Jane would have done just as well? The bakestone was Jane's domain after all. However, she would have made a fuss while Millie was soft, unable to say no to Mam's regularly inconvenient she, Tudor and Mam were all soft compared to her sister. From your father, Mam had said on more than one occasion. Her temper is from your father and his before him. She barely remembered her father, of course, but the comment about her grandad had surprised her. Grandad seemed too quiet, too absorbed in his work to have a temper. Or if he did, he swallowed it when Millie was around, when she was threading her fingers through the cob's forelock when the dray arrived, or collecting up the feathers from her uncle's recent shoot or borrowing yeast. She looked up to the heavens, the sky the colour of newly carded wool, and closed her eyes momentarily in apology. It wasn't Mum's fault. It wasn't anybody's fault. Yeast was yeast, and if some were to be had, it too would soon be used. The indoor remained open. Her uncle was not amongst the tough hillocks of grass, harder still the closer it grew to the hillside. He wasn't fixing a fence post, one hand clamped to the hat on his head, nor was he taking apart his gun on his knee, raised on the stile. As she scanned from one hillside to the next, there was no man nor beast visible, only the grasses swaying. The weather was coming in. The clouds hulked in front of her eyes. She fixed her hair behind her ears and ran towards the inn. Tom? She pushed the door back on its hinges. She'd seen grown men swing on that door, kicking their feet up from the stones and hanging from whitening fingers, her grandad smiling from the bar, but threatening recompense for any damage. Granda? It was cool in the inn, cold. She felt her knee twitch. A good inn should never be cold. There wasn't a light in the grate, nor a candle on the bar. She wrapped her shawl about her. Millie was alone, she was certain of that. She would hear her granda's boots on the flags otherwise, his constant cough hassling his whiskers, or his perfunctory barks to his one remaining son. She knocked a chair heard it screech against the flagstones. The sound made her wince. Her eyes adjusted to the gloom. The tables and benches had been pushed together. Overturned chairs, their limbs wrought together as though frozen mid-tumble. Had there been a party or a fight? And there was a smell, distinct. Tom had been hunting recently then, separa separating feather from sinew from bone. Her clogs ground glass into the stone. A pain was missing. She could hear fingers of wind sifting through the roof slates, the beating of the rain. 
Granda, she shouted this time, her voice vanishing so quickly she wasn't sure she'd said anything at all. The chimney cleared its throat, sent ash spiralling out of the grate. The blood at her wrists quickened. It was nothing to worry about, she told herself. Men living alone rarely kept house like the one she would, like man would. They didn't seem to notice the cold. But then she heard a moan, low. She skittered over the glass, her hands reaching for the bar. Sacking lay in the doorway between the bar and the snug. She went to whip it away, bundle it under her arms to put away for washing, folding or whatever her grandfather wanted. Which was when she noticed the boots, boots and legs. The red of his kerchief. She bent over it, him, bent over him. Her grandfather's body, his nose and brow beaten into his face, a soft blooded mess. She stepped back, saw her grandfather's shirt ripped open at the collarbone. She thought of the bright blood in the eggs she had cracked against the side of the bowl that morning and how she needed yeast. And teeth, teeth caught in the soup like tiny nuggets of stale bread. A faint whistle came from his mouth, the red stickiness bubbling. She crouched over him, grasped at his collar with shaking hands. Plats. His lips puckered and his breastbone rose and sank. What? What? She knelt to him this time lowered her ear to the stinking soup. The in smelt of blood, mineral, insides out. What, Granda? Her hair swung out of its pins, caught his blood. She roped it back, stared at the red on her hands. Pats, he murmured. Though his eyelids were pasted shut, black, red, brown, she could see the eyeballs roll beneath their twin shrouds, see his beard pulse, his breath heaved, his chest breaching up through the ripped fabric, then sinking as quickly. His head lurched to the side. Only his lobe remained attached to his head, a scarlet inkwell above it. His ear glittered on the flagstones. Her ears rang, her vision flickered, and her fingers felt attached as she sank them into his flesh, hefted him to her, but he was gone. Tom, she screamed, Tom! She must have let her grandfather go as his body lurched away from her heard the dull sound as he dropped back to the stone. Her hands groped the walls, fingers pinched at the door frames as she steadied herself. She was noisy now, like a bird trying to find an open window. Her patterns chattered on the stone. Her hands thumped and slapped the wood, the plaster. There was a deep guttural pant, rhythmic and regular that she realized was hers. It hurt her throat, but she seemed unable to stop it. The snuggle was bare and assuming. She retreated, backtracked, and pushed open the door behind the bar, her legs and arms groping up the stairs, her hem hampered and heavy. Her hands felt the stairs in front of her as her eyes seemed incapable. She was a dog on the stairs, mouth open and dry-tongued. Tom! Her uncle's body was prone on the bed linen, his feet bare, his arms splayed apart like one of the birds which hung from the rafters. His hair was matted but shining, the shape of his body traced and silhouetted by blood-soaked linen. Blooded handprints marked the stone. There were smears along the stairs. She noticed the drag and weight of her skirts and saw that they were reddened and sorry. She ran, hands out, hair streaming behind her, her mouth open and silent. A light shone in the window of the first bin green cottage. It may have been a candle on the sill. It may have been several dotted about a room, a family enjoying a meal together. She thought of them briefly as she ran towards it, the rain blinding her path, and thought of their forks held aloft as they heard her slamming her fists against their door, against the heavy hard wood. 
Then she noticed the knocker and grasped at it, her fingers sliding against the wet metal. The door was opened a crack. Her hand reached for the latch and air rushed out of her mouth. The face of a small, thin maid, eyebrows folded together, mouth a whiskery O, fell back into the darkness before the door was opened again further. This time a man and another man behind him holding a leather bag, a doctor, and she wanted to laugh at the coincidence of it. Somehow she managed to say something, raise the alarm, for soon they were following her back along the lane, back towards Billa Jack's the men holding their sodden hats to their sodden heads. And soon running faster than her, their shoes sidestepping the worst of the mud. Millie's skirts fell heavier and her breaths became shorter and that noise in her ears, the, the loudest of Sunday bells, the loudest of looms, scorched the inside of her head so that she could barely remember why they were running and why the door to her grandfather's inn was open. The men stopped when they reached the door, one taking out a handkerchief from his breast pocket. She couldn't decipher the look they exchanged. Though she could see things, the low wall in front of the open door, the darkness beyond the door itself, the sight wouldn't give her the meaning it used to. Stay here, the man with the handkerchief said, and he blotted it against his nose and mouth, held it there as she had seen a mill inspector do. She sank to the wall, then leant her back up against the stone and closed her eyes, the rain washing her face, seeping into her clothes. A cold hand touched her elbow. It was the man with the handkerchief, crouched low so his small brown eyes were level with hers. He no longer held the handkerchief. Are they dead? Millie asked, her throat squeezing out the words through a gap just small enough for the breaths she had been holding back. The same pulse at her wrists throbbed in her head. The man nodded as the other, standing behind in the doorway, set his leather bag to the floor. This man is a doctor, the crouching man said, though Millie knew there was no need for a doctor in what she had seen. He'll send for help, but, best, but we best get you home. Where do you live, miss? In Greenfield? She must have nodded, for the men supported her and lifted her to her feet. They looped an arm, each through hers, and shuffled away from Villa Jacks and past Bing Green. She listened to the scrape of her patterns against the track, the rain against the men's, the men's hats, she usually covered the short distance in half an hour or so, but like this, the track liquid beneath her feet, her rib cage as heavy as the copper her granddad used to wash the linen. It felt like hours. As the track began to harden and grasses on the verge to thin, she could smell the smoke of the cottage fires as families sought out their evening meals. Wow, tremendous selfie. Thank you for that. Oh my, wow. <laughs> thank you you know okay, some your publishers described it as historical fiction that mm -hmm. and I know the rest of the book is not like that but that first chapter is almost borderline gothic horror as well actually really yeah it is yeah. really it's really dark but it's very very well done so but it's fantastic so good luck with that book Sophie I really enjoyed that then thank you for that oh thank you so much thanks for your support now hang around because I do need to speak off mic anyway so but this is Andy N signing out for another episode today. It's been a tremendous episode as well. So thank you, Sophie. As Don Callis at Impact Wrestling says, as everybody, stay safe and stay over. And we will see you all next time. Spoken, mate.